So you say, the thumb of authority has risen, and so here we go. July the 28th, 2019, lecture discussion number 72 on the book of Joel. I got that right this week. Terrific. Um, first, I got to start with, I wrote Delmar and Mary Ann earlier this week, um, and I have to apologize, Delmar and Mary Ann, I did not get to the subject that uh, you wished for me to discuss. I tried. I just didn't have the energy. And so uh, I'll, I'll put that off until next week. And uh, uh, they have some fantastically interesting questions on the uh, two trees of Genesis, which I would have liked to have gotten to. A quick note <coughs> for those of you on the Internet who are following this kind of information, and I appreciate you very much. Unfortunately, when I left last Sunday, went home, my atrial fibrillation reoccurred. We couldn't get it to stop talking to Christopher on the phone for over an hour. Decided to go back into the emergency room, and I had my third cardioversion in the Providence Hospital emergency room. We arrived at about 11.30 p.m., uh, two and a half hours later, my heart finally went back to a normal sinus ry rhythm, and I was released at 3.30 a.m. after they gave me some drugs that, uh, frankly, I don't even know how to describe what they gave me. It, um, um, I just don't know what to say. They're anti-arrhythmic drugs. One of them was extremely powerful. And um, I have some concerns. Uh, I am now very, very aware of my frailty. Also recognizing my frailty isn't frail compared to some of the others who have this condition. Their trials are far, far worse than mine. And some, actually many, remain in atrial, or atrial fibrillation, AFib, for days. They never come out of it. I come out of it. I'm considered paroxysmal at this stage of this particular condition, and they have a much worse one. They have a persistence. And then there are those who are permanently fibrillated in a fibrillated state. There's an inevitability of progression in this particular uh, disease. And that's the characteristic that brings me the most concern. The goal is to avoid the chronic stage at all cost. Uh, either slow the process of disease progression or prevent it. Prevention doesn't seem to be a very simple process. So I'm going to slow it. Lori found a cartoon that said... Uh, door number one was take the pill door. And there's a line on that door that just went into infinity. The other door was the diet and exercise door. Nobody was at that door. And um, I know that the prevention methodology that has been the most successful is weight loss. And so weight loss to me is foremost. It's an immediate requirement. You may have noticed I'm trying to change every week. I have no shirts that fit and I have no pants that fit anymore. 
When I started this, I was probably in the mid-230s this morning on one scale, my favorite scale. I was 196.7. My goal is to wrestle again. I thought I got in my head that I wrestled 187, but as I'm talking to the great Bill Fast, uh, I wrestled at uh, 178. So you're, what, 176 now, aren't you? And wait. First time I saw him, you wouldn't have believed him. He didn't know I was watching. I was some dumb kid, and he was putting on gymnastic dis displays. In fact, I might have been in elementary school, Bill. I think I was. And you were at Central. Were you at Central or Clark? Windler. But he, was, he had come because we were going to go to, I was going to go to Romig Junior High School, which is built like a prison, if you've ever seen it. Which is very intelligent architecture for junior highs. But we had gone to see him to do a, uh, a presentation on, uh, on uh, different athletic capabilities, and all of us were totally in fear and impressed simultaneously. It's the first time I ever saw him, and I hid from him for the rest of my high school, junior high career. Anyway, uh, he and I are in a, separated by a few years. But we both know you've got to lose weight. So I'm going to try to get down to 178, in which case I'm going to go back to wrestling in high school again, see how that works out for me. I think I can do a lot of damage. Frankly, I, my little mind tells me I can. I know better, but my mind doesn't believe me. Okay, <laughs> enough of that. I'm still affected by the aftermath. Uh, of the drugs administered in the emergency room it takes me about seven to ten days before I can finally get going and I also have this horrible sore throat cough, 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 cough thing going on and my energy level is low so I'm not at full function at all again how can you tell so today, I decided that instead of blasting away at much more, whew, what's the word I want? Subjects that take a little bit more energy. Can anyone see me at all? Good. I'm going to throw a few subjects at the dry erase board and then next week devote the time necessary to bring them into the subject of Revelation 1 through 3. Which, of course, is magic. Don't try that by yourself. You need my help. <coughs> okay, last week, Joshua 7 came up. I had Achan in the beautiful garment. Let me write that on the board for the benefit of the Internet audience. I'll write it because when you see it sometimes, it helps you begin to connect it. Let me help you. I'll emphasize one word. Achan and the beautiful garment. And that sent us to 1 Samuel 17, 48 through 54. That's David and the armor of Goliath, because David hid the armor in his tent, and Achan hid the, hid the beautiful uh, garment 
in his tent. So a couple of points. Wow, a couple of points so soon might be a record that bear repeating are Joshua 7:19. So let's read Joshua 7:19. It is an incredible, spectacular verse. Now Joshua said to Achan, "My son, my son," he calls him, "my." Son, I'll emphasize one word. I'll do a better word, that job of emphasizing that word. Better job. My son. I capitalized it as best I could. I beg you, he says. This is Joshua. Joshua is absolutely identical, if you wish. It is sameness with Yeshua. It means salvation. I beg you, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. (coughs) He is in the position of Christ here. He is a type of Christ. Do not hide it from me. Who is Christ? He is omniscient God. How do you hide something from omniscient God? It's impossible. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. Who is the Lord God of Israel? That's Christ. How did he sin against Christ becomes the question. I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them, and there they are, hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. So to repeat, Joshua, a type of Christ, same name, salvation, begs the doomed Achan. Achan is facing execution for committing a sin against the Lord God of Israel, for stealing and hiding the beautiful garment, the devoted thing of God. And Joshua, Yeshua, salvation, begs him to give glory to the Lord God and confess and don't hide his sin. Pour his sin out in front. And there are multiple aspects intertwined here, as always is the case. The impact of what Achan did on the nation of Israel, what befell Israel because of Achan's actions, and then the actions of what I will say are his co-conspirators, or his conspirators. There's 36 dead men here. I make the case that those 36, as you know, if you've heard me do this lecture before on Joshua 7, those 36 were part of Achan's battalion, her regiment. Achan was a high-level officer, and there were probably very high-level officers in that 36 dead. Joshua 7.5 gives you that information. And the evidence of Scripture suggests that they were also burned and buried in stones. In other words, the 36 dead, their bodies were burned and they also were buried with Achan. 
It's the only thing that Scripture would say, and I'll explain that in a minute. Obviously, Achan did something that was of consequence doctrinally. It is dangerous to the nation of Israel. What did he do that could cause Israel so much danger? Stealing this garment and hiding it. Why is that a problem? Was Joshua going to show this garment to the nation of Israel? Likelihood is that he was. Why did Achan hide it? What if, if Joshua had shown it or eventually did show it? What does that do for the nation of Israel? What is this garment? Where does it come from? How did the Babylonians get it? It is called a devoted thing of God. So who owns it? Who made it? Why is it so valuable? Why is it so beautiful? And obviously Achan stole it, which is insanity, isn't it? How do you steal from the one who owns all things? And he hid it. How do you hide from the uh, omniscient creator of all things? Who happens to be the creator of time? Who happens to be outside of time? Who can see time motionless? How is, how is hiding from him going to work? Do the math. But in any event, Achan confesses. And it's amazing. He gave glory to God at the urging, the begging of Joshua. So let's repeat the most important of the obvious questions. Why does Christ beg the dying to be saved? That's an important question. Because he does. Why does he do it? And yes, I worded the question in that form intentionally. I replaced Joshua with Christ. Why does Christ beg the dying to be saved? Who's dying? Raise your hand. Never raise your hand here. But yes, good for you. You're dying from the beginning. Why does he beg the dying to be saved? Joshua representing Christ at 719 is critical to understanding. But he also is representing Christ at 725. Christ is the Savior. He is also what? The judge. He's the one that, that issues the capital of, uh, execution documents, if you will. He's the love and mercy and the judge of all, of all things. And Joshua does both parts of Christ in this account, 719, 725. And Achan and the beautiful garment, the concealing from Israel of the beautiful garment. To repeat that, what results from this? What happened to Israel because of this? Where else in Scripture is this? The stealing of one of God's devoted things. This is overflowing with truths of Christ. And if I could assign the most important of the truths of Christ that are revealed of those three, I would pick Jesus Christ, our Creator, John 1, 3, begs us to receive His gift of salvation, His gift of life. And again, why does He beg us? How many respond like Achan did? He's in a pretty tough spot. And he does incredible. He confesses. 
before God, and God is therefore faithful to forgive his sins, First John. He chooses life as God defines life. Obviously, the story is, as we should always anticipate, overfilled with mysterious, complex information, such that most commentators who read it arrive at indefensible positions. The most common is the evil, angry, God-murdered-the-children view, which I shortened to the EMG. You can put the A in there if you like. But I just like EMG. I think it can work in your phones. Give it a try. Replace the other one. Never mind. But they do. They have the... um, God is the evil, angry, or evil, angry God murdered the children view, which is very common. If you read on, you'll see the children are assembled, the uh, sons and daughters of Achan. We don't know how old Achan is. We don't know how old uh, his children are, but they're assembled to watch him be executed. And he knows it. And they think that God is just evil and he murdered the poor children who didn't do anything. And that cannot be true. God is never evil. He's not. His anger is not like your anger or my anger. Our anger is wicked. His anger is righteous. It is not the same. So whenever you come across these things, just throw out the EMG. My goodness. It's always wrong. Search for the true meaning. When you have the right positional beginning, then and only then will you find the true meaning of the text. And again, always get rid of the EMG. But that seems to be the default position of commentators. I have never understood that at all. Children will not, shall not be put to death for their father's sin. The Bible is as clear as it can be. Deuteronomy 24, 16. Children will not, shall not be put to death. So those children would would not be put to death unless they were somehow part of the conspiracy. I don't believe that's the case. You can try to make that work. So again, God did not do that. He says he won't do it and he won't do it. Discard the evil, angry, murdering God view. Stop. And yes, I am aware of Exodus 25, 25. I get that thrown at me all the time. The sins of the fathers visited upon the children of the, to the third and fourth generation. They say, there you go. Answer me that, dude. It says right there. The sins of the father are, are visited upon the children to the third and the fourth generation. They always leave something out, the next five words. Of those who hate me. That's what God said. The final five words of Exodus 20, 25 rarely make it to publication. Somehow, of those who hate me falls victim to editing. That's also the case with Exodus 34, 6 through 9. 
If you read verse 9 of that, and that's where Moses says, I have found grace in your sight, O Lord. So the same thing happens every time. They leave out the conclusion of the, of the passage. The principle is this. When a father forsakes the one true God of creation, guess what happens? What happens to his kids? Consequences ensue. The children and the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren, for forsake. They end up hating Jesus Christ just like the Father did. That's Jeremiah 16, 9 through 21. If you want to take some time in your off-time fathers and read all of that. Anyway. If the accusation of Satan, which is Matthew 4, 1 through 7, and Luke 4, 1 through 13, put into the context of Exodus 17, 1 through 7, which we've been covering the past few weeks. If you haven't, if you're coming to this lecture for the first time, there's a few in front of it that will help explain what I just said. Ultimately, Exodus 17, 1 through 7 is where Israel says two facets Two elements of the lie of Satan. One of them is, why have you brought us out of Egypt to kill us and kill our children and kill our animals? That's the EMG view, isn't it? They throw it right at God there. The second one they say, is God among us or not? And that's what's going on in the testing of Christ testing of the purity, the deity, the goodness of Christ at Matthew 4, 1 through 7, and Luke 4, 1 through 13, in the wilderness. So quickly, yes, God is among us. He has given us existence. The answer is yes, it's always yes. If it weren't yes, that's the evil, murdering God view again. Why we always go back to the evil, angry, murdering God view as Christians. Blows my mind. But it is. Whoosh. Just constantly like a magnet. It's never right. But let's just concede the premise for a second. If Christ has not given us existence, if it's all a lie, then why, why would he beg us to be saved? Saved from what exactly? If we are just temporal, robotic automatons, that's a redundancy, don't write me. I'm a professional, I get to do redundancies, remember the rules. And we're merely waiting for extinguishment and we don't know it. Why would Christ mourn for the lost? <laughs> Weep! Plead with us to be saved. If Satan's lie were true, Jesus Christ would not mourn. Jesus God would not weep. It's an obvious inconsistency. You have a God that gave you existence, life, and he weeps for you when you choose Satan's lie and you reject him. Clearly, we have an eternal destiny. God testifies the, so in the essence of his redemptive plan. 
That's why finding everywhere where he leap, weeps for the lost. People have them have him weeping for himself. Do you see how ridiculous that is? Because if you have him weeping for himself, and most churches do overwhelmingly have him weeping for himself, then what have you done with regard to him begging to save you? You've made a mockery out of it. The issue is not duration of existence. Again, that's an intentionally poorly worded phrase, because I am a religious professional. The issue is not duration of existence. The issue is the location, the destination. Some are going to reconcile. They'll come to the Lord. Achan came to the Lord. Others are not coming to confess. They will not give glory to God. They will reject. They will spurn the extended hand of eternal life as God defines life. Here's a fantastic sentence. There is no life without life. Okay, being so incredibly profound, I get rewarded. What's that? No Skittles, because I can't have any anymore ever for the rest of my life. Okay, there is no life without life. That may sound simple, but it is not, turns out. Let me rephrase it a bit. Without the only one who has life and who is life itself, there is no life. People hate that when I say that because, again, it's exclusionary. How can you? Can't call me metabolically challenged anymore, one-eyed person. How can you say that Christ is the only one with life? Do you know how I can do it? Because he's the only one with life. He's the only one that has life. There is no other place, no other person but him. Absence of him who is the life giver results in death as God defines death. Death, therefore, is a condition that is an extension of the descent into darkness. The absence of the light of light. Try to say that again. The absence of the light of life. Achan grabbed the hand of Christ. He is on his way to be executed. Oh, is that a familiar story? Look for the New Testament compliments. Achan on his way to be executed and he grabs the hand of Jesus Christ and I submit he did so not just as a man who was about to be condemned but as a father and as a desperate sinner. What I mean by that, he gave glory to the Lord God of Israel, Joshua seven nineteen through 20, in front of his family. Joshua seven sixteen through 18. Achan took the extended hand of Christ. Why isn't this a Father's Day lecture? Achan took the extended hand of Christ in front of the nation of Israel, of whom he had troubled, but primarily in the sight of his children, and then went obediently 
to his death a saved man. Am I that unattractive I have to be put into darkness? <laughs> oh, I'm flickering too, so that'll work out. Oh, I'm doing pretty good, did you know? Yeah. Where is your monitor? Hidden in the bag. We are so good at this subversive tactics. Because if it looks like I'm going down, that'll affect the tithing, won't it? I gotta make, hang in there for the milk and bread. Achan took the extended hand of Christ in front of this nation whom he had troubled, troubled but he's thinking of not about just the nation of Israel. He has his children, his family, and he went obediently to his death, a saved man. Consider the testimony here. And it's not all that dissimilar to King Saul, 1 Samuel 28, 15 through 25. I'll make a better eight. What's that? That's King Saul. Saul decides he's got a good plan, and it turns out to be a fantastic plan. He's going to get some information. What information does he want? Do you know the story? He knows that he's in a lot of trouble. He thinks that he's probably going to be, going to be killed by the Philistines, which isn't a very pleasant thought. So he's going to go find this woman that might be able to help him. Never mind that he's killed all the women who tell things like this woman tells. So he has to disguise himself. And, of course, that doesn't work because he's a monster. It's like Taco Fall. Do you know who Taco Fall is? Taco Fall plays basketball for the Boston Celtics. Do you know who Shaquille O'Neal is? Is Shaquille O'Neal a big man? Have you seen him next to Yao Ming? He looks like a child. It's scary. Taco Fall is bigger than Yao Ming. Taco Fall can reach ten foot two and change with a basketball. So this is how he dunks. He's ridiculously big and seems to be a very kind-hearted man. And I, I think he has quite good potential. I was surprised when he wasn't drafted. For those of you who turn in to this lecture for sports information, I'll give you my fantasy football picks here next, next week. I'll get a bigger audience. You just, you think I'm kidding. Saul goes and sees this woman. Gets, uh, she and Samuel are involved in this and Samuel, of course, is dead. So Samuel comes and is not in a good mood. I see the flickering now. It's got worse. So somehow this is Terry's fault. You are really making a mess out of things back there. Okay, Daniel's coming to the rescue. So you say, Those rheostats that are in line with these incandescent lights, that's a resistive in line. Res the last time it did that, it exactly. It burned the building down to everyone's delight. Those rheostats are only 50 years old, so don't worry. 
Eventually, this gets to a condition where Saul knows he's going to die. He's told he's going to die. And he refuses to eat. He doesn't want to eat. Now, why doesn't he want to eat? He's in really poor shape. He's in a weakened state. I have a commiserate. But the woman, having just seen Samuel, changes completely. She makes this dramatic adjustment. And she urges Saul to eat. She prepares him bread. She goes out and gets a fatted calf. She makes a meal for Saul. If I'm talking fatted calf, I'm with the parable of the two sons, aren't I? Find your New Testament compliments. What made this woman say, you have to eat? Because Saul was going to lay down on the ground. He goes to the ground. When he hears this information, obviously he's trying to sabotage what Samuel told him he needed to do. For those on the internet, Luke 15, 11 through 32, parable of the two sons, not the prodigal son. Please stop. And the fatted calf is incredibly prominent there. King Saul was told by Samuel that he would be slain by the Philistines. And Saul knew something about that. How, was, how well was that going to go for Saul? Not good. They're going to torture him. There's no question about that. First Samuel 31, 4. He said so. And in an already incredibly weak state, Saul considered dying with the woman of Endor. But she's not having it. She encouraged him to eat, regain his strength, and fight. He's going to die. But go fight. And she wanted him to fulfill this prophecy. Be obedient to it. And King Saul complied. She convinced him. And he ate. And he rose up. And he completed his reign. And Saul died with his sons. His sons went with him. He rose up from the ground and went out and died with his sons. I want you to consider the testimony of Saul. Who was he testifying to? Why did this woman want him to do this? It's an incredible account. The woman is the witch of Endor. Astonishing. Samuel. Astonishing. King Saul and his son, the armor bearer. All of that information is in there and it is amazing as it always is. But for today, I just want you to notice that I have done what to you? I have connected Achan to King Saul, haven't I? And I've connected it to King, Saul, to King David. How does Achan link to King David? Well... David murdered Uriah, and he raped Bathsheba, and Nathan exposed David, came to David. Joshua came to Achan and said, you're going to die. Nathan goes to David and says, your child's going to die. So there's some difference. Nathan says to 2 Samuel 12, 14, the child who is born. Let me just stop there. Erase something. <coughs> I'll write it this way. The child who is born shall surely die. 
Who are we talking about? The child who is born shall surely die. This child of David and Bathsheba, in fact, dies after a prolonged sickness. And David mourns and fasts for the period of illness or the sickness. So he is mourning and weeping and threw himself on the ground. So here I got Saul and David on the ground. Is Saul more on the ground because he knows his sons are going to die with him? Or is he on the ground because he's pitiful and he wants to avoid death for himself? Or is it some combination? But David mourns and fasts, lays on the ground until the child dies. And then he rises up and eats. So Saul rises up and eats. David rises up and eats. Both of them are told about death of their children by a prophet. 1 Samuel, 1 Nathan. There may be a similarity enough there that you would say, huh, you should read those side by side perhaps someday. So let's sum up some of these points. Parts, actually. The child of David dies, and David begs for the life of the child and laid himself on the ground. The child who was born dies on the seventh day, 2 Samuel 12:18. David arose up from the ground. Saul rose up from the ground. And hopefully you have now got enough to start assembling the rest of them that I didn't give you. The child of David dies, but David lives as a murderer and a rapist. Is that fair? Hagen stole a garment and he gets executed. David, he murders a guy who rapes his wife, who's a young girl, probably 15. The text indicates that without being blunt. You'll find it if you read it. The children of Achan live and Achan dies. Saul dies and his sons die. Nadab and Abihu die. This is where you go, huh? How does Adab and Abihu fit in? Uh, sorry, Nadab and Abihu fit in there. Abihu. Where'd that come from? Well, who is Nadab and Abihu the most like? Saul, David, or Achan. Both are examples to the assembled nation of Israel, Achan and Nadab and Abihu. Also in that group, if you wish, is the wicked man gathering wood for a fire. Who's he going to burn? Oops. On the Sabbath, number 16, 32 through 41. I mentioned that briefly last week, I think. All of last Sunday, pretty much in a fog, I had three days of struggling with the AFib, and I had to eventually succumb to the pharmacological conversion process, and then I did it again on Sunday. The point is, yay, finally some kind of point, maybe. Achan attaches to many. He attaches to Nadab and Abihu. They're both 
examples of bringing something to in front of Israel that was the, the profaning the, pro, uh, the redemptive work of Christ, the doctrine of Christ. I have the saved thief on the cross. I hope that's obvious. Uh, there's the antichrist type of the guy gathering the firewood on the Sabbath. That obviously takes a disparate path, though there exists some commonalities. Both of them are put in front of the entire nation and executed. One saved, one unsaved. And that's the challenge of Scripture. Assigning, if I leave you with a couple of things today, this is a challenge. You've got to find the pieces and then assign the placement of the pieces into their proper classifications. And some of those are, are, I'd say, apparent. And others are very challenging. Frankly, all of them are very challenging. Still doing okay, huh? I should be rewarded. I found out that I can't eat very many Worcestershire sauce, so I've dropped them as a sponsor. They have anchovies, which is good, apparently. I need the fish. But they got enough sodium to kill a horse. Boy, I love that stuff. If I could only taste it, I'd be up here like this. In fact, I do. I, I mix my meat in it, you know. It's marinated for a while, and then I eat the meat, which I can never do again. And then the bowl has all of this Worcestershire sauce, and I drink the whole thing. Why is he a sick man? What what could have happened to him? Jennifer in Arizona, I, okay, I deserve it. Yeah. Okay, where am I? <coughs> the next example of all of this is David and Absalom. Absalom, second Samuel 14:25 as with Saul is described how is he described do you know Saul's described the same way beautiful both of them described as ridiculously beautiful Saul's father I should add I have a beautiful garment and I have these two beautiful guys probably probably nothing just forget it Saul's father was called a mighty man in Scripture. Oh, my gosh. What's that? You would be right if you said Genesis 6. He's a mighty man of power. That's clearly a Genesis 6 reference. As an aside, ha-ha, thought I made a mistake. Okay, I thought about making the mistake. David loved Saul. This huge, beautiful man. And Saul is huge. He's the tallest man in all of Israel and the most beautiful man in all of Israel. And his father is a mighty man of power. And he's bigger than his father. Did you do the math? How do I know he's bigger than the father? Because the father's in Israel. And Saul's taller than anybody in Israel. Throw money. Every now and then I just have to descend into being a real pastor and beg for money. 
That's a joke. Please don't worry about it. My favorite thing to do when I, for a long time, not a long time, just enough, I would get down off the stage and go by the door, and as people would come by, I would do the, shake the hand and say, hey, did you tithe? I couldn't stop myself. And they would look at me like, oh, my goodness. I said, oh, so you didn't. Would you like to go back? You're still tithing. It would mortify them, and I thought it was hilarious. I still think it's hilarious, and if I had any vitality, I'd still do it. But we don't get visitors now, and I always did it to the visitors. Why don't they come back? I don't get it. What's that? Yeah. <coughs> anyway, Absalom is the son of David, and he is loved by the shepherd king. And Absalom raises an army. And what does he want to do with his army? That's right, fratricide. Just like, oh, the two sons in Luke 15. The elder son wants to kill the father. And does so, or attempts so, at the end of that parable that no one ever seems to know. You make the case the younger son wishes the father dead as well because both of them want their inheritance before the father dies, which is an indication that they'll kill him if he doesn't give it to them. In any event, Absalom raises an army for the purpose of killing his father and seizing the throne. He wants to be the king. He sees the king and he wants the king's throne. Does that sound familiar? So anybody that says, you know, I'm going to be like the king. I'm going to rule over everybody. Anybody say that? That's beautiful. Isaiah 14. Ezekiel 28. 16. Raising an army. David is forced to retreat. Because Absalom is going to kill him. Absalom is chasing him. This man of incredible beauty, the hair, his hair is described. And you have to ask yourself, why is his hair so prominent? It reminds you of who? Who is Samson? That's right. Put your hair all together. Thanks for laughing. You're the only one. Do you know that? She's still laughing. You have to move closer. You're going to keep doing that because it's so encouraging. David retreats. Where does he go? He goes to the Mount of Olives and he ascends the Mount of Olives. So the king of Israel, the shepherd king of Israel, the good shepherd king of Israel is ascending the Mount of Olives, weeping, knowing that this beautiful person is coming to kill him. And his head is covered and he's barefoot and he's fleeing from Absalom. To shorten the story, because I'll fall down if I don't, David eventually escapes and he returns with an overwhelming force. And he knows that Absalom is facing impending defeat. And the king gets all of his generals and he says to them, Spare Absalom. Don't kill him. Why doesn't he want to kill Absalom? He wants him alive. Why? The generals don't want him alive. One general in particular. 
But he wants his son spared, though the son wishes only death for the father. David's highest ranking general, Joab, he disregards those direct orders and he murders Absalom. Speared him and cast him into a pit and covered him with stones. Why are we covering people with stones? David mourns and weeps when he finds out his beloved son is dead and says, I wish I could have died in your place. I would have chosen to die in your place, and I believe him. Why does David, the son's trying to kill him, want the son to live and David to die? Because David has it figured out. Fortunately, I put the cap on. It's because I'm a professional. There. Living dangerously now. The shepherd king weeps. Why? Wants to substitute himself, sacrifice himself. He would rather Absalom have the kingdom and David be dead than the opposite, which is what has occurred. So why did David want Absalom to live? Why did he weep and mourn at Absalom's physical death? And note the contrast here with David's second, if you wish, child who dies. The the child who was born that shall surely die, David mourned when the child was alive and rose from the ground and ate when the child who was born dies. That's the opposite of Absalom. And hopefully, again, you're assembling and classifying and comparing King David with Christ on the Mount of Olives, Gethsemane, the garden. Quickly, this is always fun. Where was Goliath's skull buried? Where did David bury Goliath's skull? Why did he go to the place where he buried Goliath's skull? What did that mean for David? And I should say this last Sunday in an articulate manner. I, I wish to cause everyone to reconsider Goliath's size, so I asked ridiculous questions in a hyperbolic state or context, I guess. I said, how heavy was his armor? 100 pounds, 500 pounds, 1,000 pounds? Have a position. Uh, and that probably was, again, a little bit clumsy. But I wanted you to think and reconsider Goliath's size. Because I think you got it wrong. I'm not sure. A few of you might have it right. But mostly Goliath is considered to be about nine feet tall, maybe 500 pounds. And I submit that narrative is opposed in the scripture. I did not, as is my normal predisposition, actually lay that out last week. I just asked you to consider the possibility. Come up with how heavy you think your sword is and put it in his hand and defend it. You think it's only a, you know, 16-ounce sword? Okay, great. Let's defend that. I'm going to say there's a relationship between the sword and the size, aren't I? And the weight and the armor. 
And I just asked you to consider the possibilities, again, suggesting by hyperbola that Goliath may have been much more imposing than the traditional rendering. What I'm saying is that I have the supernatural shocking position uh, of David, Saul, and Goliath, and the Israelites, and the Philistines in the 40 days. I have a small boy, don't I, with a rock, strikes and incapacitates a giant with a sling while he's on the run. I'm wondering about that. I think it happened. But if I do a test, I go get Taco Fall, if he would volunteer, and he won't. And I have a hundred-pound boy run at him, have them run at each other from who knows how far away. He's got a sling, and he slings the rock at my basketball player. You wondered how Taco Fall fit into this, didn't you? I am a professional. I wonder how many times he could hit him and how many times my hundred-pound boy with his sling would hurt him. Now, I know that a small boy with a rock strikes and incapacitates a giant. The stone sinks into his head. He does it with a sling and a smooth rock again on the run after having done the same with a lion and a bear. Okay, now you're getting into my territory. I've lived in this state for 500 years. I know what it takes, and so do you, many of you, probably all of you, trying to find someone who doesn't know, haven't yet. We know what it takes to stop a charging bear up here. And no one... By no one, I mean no one, uses any kind of slingshot. Not happening here. Ever. Running is in play, but not towards the bear. So how did this happen really? Set aside the Sunday school lessons, which are almost always incompetent, sorry. Why did the Philistines panic? Because they did. They panicked. Remember, Goliath had a proposition. You come out and kill me, you can t- we'll surrender. I come out and kill you, you'll surrender. This has been going on 40 days. And the Israelites are in total fear of him, total fear. Now, what would you think from a military standpoint? I got a giant out there. He's a big guy. How many troops have I got? You're the Navy SEAL Team 6. What would they do? Would they go, oh, he's too big for us? These are men that fought each other for centuries. They got a giant out there. One guy. His army is quite a ways behind him. Why don't we go out there, the little expeditionary, expeditionary force, bury yourself in the sand at night, jump up with swords and hit him from all sides. Chop him down, run back to your line. How about arrows? No, let's send a hundred-pound boy with a rock and a kerchief. See how that works out. How many other giants were in the army 
of the Philistines. Where did those giants come from? Who are those giants? Why did they run? What happened here that made that army run? Eventually, they overwhelmed the Israelites. They come back and kill Saul. Ultimately, he, kills, he falls on a sword. They kill his sons, all likelihood. Maybe they all committed suicide, protect themselves from being tortured. Kind of the last bullet for yourself process. So I want to know those questions. Goliath was unkillable. Couldn't kill him. Who is like Goliath? Let me write, read it this way. Who was like Goliath? Who is able to defeat, make war with the giant? Revelation 13, 4. This was not your average ordinary giant, in my view. And that was not an average ordinary boy with a rock and a handkerchief running as fast as he could. This is a supernatural event. There's your two choices. Is it a natural Occurrence, a fluke, or is it a supernatural occurrence? How powerful, how, I want an estimation of Goliath that will reflect the shock and panic. No one thought he would die. He's unkillable. That was their weapon. How many Israelites would come after him? Did he want 20 to come after him? 50? Did he have a plan if they did? How many could he kill? Is he the Philistine version of Samson? How many does he have with him just like him? Because those Israelis, some of the toughest, most credible fighters ever, they didn't attack. They thought they had no chance. Who can make war with the beast? Who is like the beast? Who can kill the beast? Revelation 19, 19 through 21, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through, 3 through 12. Ultimately, the question is, is how much of a wonder was Goliath? Okay, apologies to Delmore and Marianne. I've got to stop here. I'll get you next week, assuming the Lord tarries and the creeks don't rise. Let's stand and be dismissed.